Hello and welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. This is uh, one of your regular hosts, Matthew, with uh, the other regular host, Andrew. Say hello to the world, Andrew. Hello to the world. <laughs> hello. Um, and today, I can't tell you how excited I am about this episode. I'm almost childish about it. Um, anyway, today, uh, Andrew and I are talking to Dr. Philip Goff. Uh, Philip is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Durham University here in the UK. So we have a UK guest, uh, another brilliant one. So hello, Philip, and welcome. And thank you so much for coming on for, with us. Hello. Good. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Right. So, uh, Philip. I, yeah, I sent you a tentative email after hearing your appearance on the Unbelievable podcast with, with Justin Briley, and you were very enthusiastic about about coming on and said straight away, yes, you want to want to come on, and we exchanged quite a few emails coming on to this. So, first of all, thank you, and I know there's several of our listeners who have bugged me already to to have you on, so I'm really anticipating this is going to be a looked forward to episode did i say that right um anyway yes so so thank you and my my introduction to asking you uh, to come on was my wife and i listened to the episode of unbelievable that uh, you were on while we're on a car journey going away for family weekend and my wife's a christian uh, I am not. We don't often lif- listen to the unbelievable episodes together, but it just so happened by happenstance that yours was an episode that we, we listened to together. And so this is an opportunity for me to properly understand some of the things that, that you said uh, and you intended, because I want to be sure that I understood you correctly. Now, I came away, I think it was partway through that episode. Uh, if I understood correctly, you said that you identified uh, as a Christian. And so I remarked uh, while, we, while we were driving along, I said, really, if he if he doesn't believe the facts, how can he identify as a Christian? And my, my uh, wife said, no, I'm not really sure that's what he said. Did he really say that? And then later on, as the conversation progressed, uh, my wife said, oh, maybe he does. I don't understand that. So we were we don't often unite over over issues of Christianity and in response to guests, but we, we united there. So so congratulations right. on uh, bringing in some marital unity uh, uh, on that, even if the reasons weren't for exactly the same reason. So right. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say on that. Do you identify as Christian? And let's expand on on what we mean, or rather, what what you mean by religious fictionism, and uh, and see what leads. Cool, great, yeah, yeah. I think that also through through Christy May, who I was debating on the Unbelievable podcast. I think it was just the summing up part, and we were invited to um, sort of sum up. I think we were invited just to say what we thought of the statement that Jesus is the way, the truth of the life, but it was just supposed to be a summing up. But then I think I started off saying as a Christian and um, Christy May was like, what, what are you talking about? It <laughs> sort of blew up at the end. Yeah, I guess, I guess because fundamentally I think of religious, religious identity, not a ma- not as a matter of belief, but as a matter of practice. I mean, may- maybe it would help actually, before we get to Christianity to, to start off with the religious beliefs I do have because I do have certain religious beliefs, although of, of a quite minimal sort. And that, I mean, m- maybe that would help to get a kind of background and then move yeah, into sure. how I understand religion and build up to get to the, why the hell would I call myself a Christian? So, I mean, I might be repeating some things I said in the Unbelievable podcast here, but so I, I'm definitely an atheist about 
the omni god you know the all-powerful all-knowing perfectly good creator of the universe and that's simply for the because of the problem of evil i think you know the the argument from the existence of evil and suffering to the non-existence of of the omni god is, is you know i think one of the most compelling philosophical arguments there is so i'm an atheist about that god but i do believe in something that's a little bit harder to characterize but i would put it by saying i believe that there's a moral and a, a spiritual aspect to reality and i think that moral and spiritual aspect to reality is as real and concrete as what we know about the world scientifically so so i call this the, the transcendent maybe it's similar to what william james called the more but I, I, by transcendent i don't mm. mean to imply necessarily that it's something supernatural just in the sense that it transcends what we know about the world scientifically i mean maybe we could talk a little bit more about that but just to finally just make the link, link to religion i suppose I, I think of the purpose of religion as about connecting up individuals and communities to the transcendent allowing people to live in a way that acknowledges its existence and helps one to, to deepen one's awareness of the transcendent so, so that's how i see the purpose of religion i don't see it fundamentally as a matter of belief but as a matter of practice a practice that helps helps one orientate one's life towards the transcendent that is very interesting I've, so you know we talked in the in the run-up before we before we started recording about just sort of having a chat around these things and so my first question is if if we could deduce through some set of uh, of scientific principles and eventual scientific discovery and, and by the way i don't i don't recognize scientific evidence as being different from any other kind of evidence so in that sense you might view me as a strict materialist right so uh, but it's useful for you to know that that's sort of where this question comes from so if we deduced uh, through modeling and and empirical uh, empirical evidence that that our social drive our need for social structure and human interaction and you know the 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 sort of ethics that do seem to transcend the individual right because we we see we see ethical behavior largely in every every society we encounter and that seems to uh, to be uh, sort of a golden thread that runs through human history, right? How to mm-hmm. how to treat each other is a big idea. If we discovered that that was just a social characteristic passed down to us by nature of being social creatures in evolution, would you be would you be as happy with that as a transcendent source as you know as you would be if we discovered uh, that there's actually a, you know, some benevolent winder of the universe that imprinted that in our DNA. Yeah, I guess I'm not fundamentally motivated by where we get our moral views from and our moral um, motivations. Although, although perhaps the, the, the views I embrace about ethics may, may make that rather tricky to make sense of. But, but I mean, what I'm, my motivation is not, oh, you know, where did, how do we, where do we get moral principles from? Mm. It must have been from God rather than evolution. I mean, the point is just what grounds moral truths. I mean, I, I guess it, <clears throat> if your if your listeners are familiar with these 
Christian apologetic debates and William Lane Craig. I mean, you know, he has arguments that the that there must be, uh, you know, if there are objective moral truths, there must be a, an objective ground to moral truths. Right. Uh, objective lawgiver. I mean, yeah. Well, I so I, I buy that kind of line to the extent that there must be some objective source of moral value but i completely don't buy that that it that it must be a person of some kind or even supernatural in fact you know i think and i think you know divine command theories of ethics are just wildly implausible for all sorts of reasons you know the the use of throw dilemma being the obvious one so so i think that i think there is an objective source of moral value you know basically this is this was plato's view right that there is mm. in some sense the form of the good the goodness itself yeah. but i don't see any kind of philosophical reason to think it must be a person of some kind so so if there was just what we know about from empirical science about uh, about the world and about our development and that was all that there was then you know i i think there would be no facts about value the fact that you know the facts of natural science are valueless but you know i think i think we we encounter value we encounter value in lived human experience and i guess i don't see why i should be i, I think it's rational to trust our, our experiences of value in the same way it's rational to trust our experiences our sensory experiences you know i think all knowledge all knowledge of anything outside of one's own mind begins with trusting certain experiences you know i i i've experienced that suggests there's a table in front of me here but you know i don't know for sure i could be in the matrix it could be a very vivid dream but i think it's rational to trust that experience and to believe there's a table in front of me similarly i have moral experiences that you know suggest to me that torturing children for fun is bad and you know, maybe they're delusions, but I think it's rational to trust those experiences. And in doing so, I think you're you're committing to a reality that in some sense goes beyond what we know about scientifically. Although I wouldn't want to say it's necessarily supernatural. Does that right. So you're, not claiming, I, yeah, so you're not claiming dualism, just that there are uh, there are certain there, there are our sense experience. So I think there's you know, we may we may end up over in. A conversation about qualia uh, pr- pretty quickly, uh, although I'm not sure that that's necessarily the appeal that you're making. But there uh, do seem to be certain types of questions and answers that uh, empiricism doesn't get to the heart of. Yeah, and here's here's a, here's a, a very uncontroversial case: mathematics. You know, I think th- there's a fact about the world: two plus two is four. We don't know that from empirical science. We don't know that with our senses. We know it through intuition. So I, I think there is there's a there's certainly more to the world than what we know about scientifically because there's also mathematical facts and like Plato I, th- I think that's part of the nature of reality it's part of the timeless nature of reality that two plus two is four and that's something we know through intuition uh, and so I don't see why so I, I guess I think of mathematical and moral truths as a sort of on in the same ballpark again as Plato did so I think there's the there's what we know about through our senses, about the spatio-temporal world, and there's also what we know through intuition, facts about logic and mathematics, facts about morality. But it's all of the same reality, I think. I think I would depart from Plato in that regard. Plato thought it was mm. this other realm, but I don't see why we shouldn't just think 
there's just the universe, but it has this spatiotemporal nature and it has this timeless mathematical moral nature as well. I wonder. So I, I don't. I don't want to turn this into a conversation about about the heart of mathematics because every listener will switch off, right? <laughs> and we'll just be talking <laughs> to true. each other. That's true. But I, I do. I tended not to mention mathematics actually. But <laughs> no, well, I, I do think that there's a. I do think that there's something philosophically interesting in that conversation, though. And so now probably every listener switched off anyway because we just, <laughs> because I just used the phrase philosophically interesting. Uh, but I but I do think that it's worth talking about because when we say that we have an intuition about two plus two equals four, I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, that intuition is remarkably faulty. So mm-hmm. I can say that I have an intuition that one plus one equals two, uh, or, or I might even I might even grasp uh, an intuition that five plus five equals ten, but I don't have any intuition about the answer 301 plus 489 plus 87 plus 92. So, so at some point, I don't, I don't entirely buy the idea that our mathematical intuition is a thing that we have at sort of bare metal, right? That, that this is a, a brute force fact uh, about the universe, because if it were, it seems to me that our intuition about large numbers should be equally as good as our intuition about small numbers. I know that there are the occasional savants who will simply say, but, but mine is, right? <laughs> so so, so uh, I'll just say that I don't, I don't have that sort of unique brain, right? I, I actually have to press the buttons or, or operate the mechanics of math if I'm not using a calculator to come, to come up with the right answer. And so, I, I think for me, the idea of mathematical intuition doesn't get me to the same place that it does you because mm-hmm. there are more outliers for uh, answers to mathematical problems than there are places where I actually have intuition that's not faulty. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I suppose I would say I don't see why it follows from what you said, which was, of course, true that we, you know, we, we don't have intuitions about very complicated sums. I don't see why it follows that we don't know mathematics through intuition. I mean, similarly with sense experience, I can see some things. I can see the table in front of me, but, you know, I can't see without the help of a telescope distant galaxies. And even with the help of a telescope, we can't see things outside of our light cone. So I don't see why it shouldn't be the same with mathematical intuition. And I mean, it's hard to see how else we learn about mathematics. There are pure mathematicians in our universities who sit there and work out all kind of cool things about the mathematical realm and most of them take themselves to be discovering these things they're not sitting there making them up they're not novelists that they discover really cool truths about the mathematical realm and how are they doing they're not they're not doing experiments you know they're not um they're at least on the face of it they they're learning about reality through intuition and i i i think it's it's that, that that's what we do with morality as well sorry Oh, that's no, that's very interesting. Uh, so we're going to stay over in mathematics for another second. I promise. <laughs> I promise to leave. This it's the cool. teaser for what's about to come. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so I, I think I think I see a I think we're in accord in in part of this and, and not in another part. So 
I am, I am not at all suggesting that the work of abstract thought doesn't lead us to incredibly important truths. Uh, abstract, uh, abstract thought, I think, is, is our most powerful human tool. It's, it's probably what separates us uh, from, from what we call lower order primates or, or, or whatever, right? And, and so we get imaginary numbers through that exercise. And we, you know, the, we couldn't have this conversation that we're having, you know, in multiple parts of the world without, without some of those important mathematical realizations. So, so I agree with all of that. However, the idea of discovery, um, you know, it, it's not as if the, um, theoretical mathematician, the, the person who is actually exploring the, the boundaries of the vistas of, of, of maths. It is not as if every idea they have is a good idea. Yeah. And those ideas that, that we ultimately find beneficial are exercised against the, the physical world. So in the case of, of, um, of imaginary numbers, just as for instance, right, it, it is it is the case that when we learn about imaginary numbers, not every intuition that we have about uh, imaginary things is in some sense uh, real. And by real, in this case, I guess I just mean useful, right? That it, that it tells us something about the physical world. And, and so in that sense, I think our intuition actually probably comes from a primitive understanding about uh, identity and uh, non-contradiction and laws of exclusion and that sort of thing. Things that I think we learn uh, probably through our senses without quite being able to name them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's very interesting. Okay. Two, so two things in response to that. What was the, I was, I got lost on the second point then. What was the first point again? Oh, sure. No problem. <laughs> no, no. It's, okay. So as I remember it, not particularly, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a really small memory buffer. It's it's uh, it's remarkable. You, you'd swear I was using a Windows product. Oh, no, uh, I remembered my... what you said. I remembered what you said. Let, let me come back. Um, yes, please. Yeah. So, so I agree. Right. Some maths is, is more useful in understanding physical reality. You know, some, you know mm, we used mm. to think Euclidean geometry corresponded to um, mm. physical reality. Now we we think non-Euclidean geometry. Do. So, so that's. That, that, that's one application of maths, but you know a lot of maths. That's why I focus on pure maths is just sure. finding out about the mathematical realm, regardless of whether it, it corresponds to physical reality. I mean, I, I I just let me give you a bit of big narrative here, and then I'll come back to your point about your very interesting thought about how how we learn these things maybe subtly through our mm. senses. You know, mm. I I think we are going through a phase of history where people are so blown away by the you know rightfully by the success of physical science you know and the wonderful technology it's produced that we're inclined to think oh that's it that must be everything and and that's nice cause that gives you a kind of nice sense of security you know uncertainty you know you trust science that's what the world is like but i just and i think this actually begins maybe with david hume reducing the um casting doubt on the on the substantial nature of mathematical and a priori truths. He just thinks, oh, they're just relations for, between ideas. They're just, but you know, I think there's all sorts of things that don't fit into that picture. I mean, consciousness is one thing I spend a lot of time dealing with, but also mathematical truths, logical truths. So, you know, I think we've got a very strange picture of the world where actually our, our official picture of the world 
can't accommodate many other things that we all know to be real. You know, nobody denies that there are mathematical truths. Most, most people don't deny there are moral truths. Hardly anyone denies this consciousness. And yet I think these things don't fit into this worldview that's essentially been brought about because of just being blown away by the success of physical science. Um, anyway, sure. that was a bit of rhetoric that you could, you could maybe edit it out. It was a bit rambling. But you, you oh, no, this, no, no, no. Actually, uh, actually, it was lovely. Yeah, that won't get cut. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, see something important in what you're saying there, because uh, in one sense, you're you're questioning whether I'm being a skeptic or whether I'm being a cynic. And and I don't want to be cynical about uh, about the possibility of new truth. Right. So so I am an empiricist. I, you know, I, I'm pretty pretty convinced of that. Right. But but I don't want to I don't I don't want to be close to the notion that there are potential ideas that are that are just as useful or beneficial. Right. And and so I I do want to be careful about not letting my skepticism become cynicism. Yeah, no, sure. That's that's appreciate. That's I didn't mean to suggest that. But you had this interesting idea that maybe we sort of subtly learn about the non-contradiction through our senses and so on. I suppose I'm inclined to think that there could be a race of creatures that evolved to know empiric, to know mathematical truths and logical truths as though, as though they were contingent laws of nature. So they might think, oh, two plus two happens to be four, but it could have been different. You know, there are no contradictions, there are no square circles, but there could have been. And presumably those creatures would survive just as well. But I think not only do we know that two plus two is four, but we know that that has to be true. We can just, as it were, see intuitively that it that square circles are impossible, uh, that contradictions are impossible. I mean, I really buy what Descartes talks of clear and distinct perception. So I do. I guess I'm an old school rationalist in that sense, uh, thinking that there are things that are just apparent uh, to us with something close to certainty that involve mathematical and logical truths. And I, I find it hard to make sense of, you know, how we could know about those with our senses. I mean, some philosophers have tried to make sense of that. John Stuart Mill tried to make sense of mathematics being empirical. But it's, it's, it's tough to see how it can be done. And but why are we trying to do this? I mean, why on earth would we try and think that we that we know about mathematical truths through, through our senses. I think it's because we feel, you know, that, that we're in this mindset that natural science is so amazing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if that was the whole story? When, I mean, as I argue in my new book, Galileo's Error, in fact, I think, you know, the reason natural science has been so successful, here's the irony, is because it focused on a very narrow, narrow focused domain of inquiry, mm. namely you know, tracking mm. the behavior of matter, seeing what mathematical models you could get to predict the behavior of matter. That's gone really well for the last 500 years. But, you know, it's gone really well precisely because from the start it wasn't, it, you know, we set on side things like consciousness, mathematical truths, logical truths, you know, that that's outside of the domain. But I think we've forgotten that the whole thing was premised on ignoring these things that you know, are not really anything to do with what empirical science is in the business of. Anyway, but it's a big debate. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, Matthew, I know that you tried to say something a moment ago, and I don't, I don't want to. Yeah, there were there were a couple of thoughts. See, um, 
I'm not convinced that the two plus two plus four example is is the the best one to illustrate because if you've got um, a beautiful home baked rhubarb crumble in front of you and you want to divide that equally between four people to consume, there's there's only one way pretty much in which you can divide that into four four equal pieces, and it doesn't matter whether you understand the concept of two plus two equals four or not. You know the that the physics of how you cut that pie, sorry, crumble, uh, isn't going to change. But I think where intuition does get get thrown is a, an example that I like is if you draw a triangle on a on a perfect sphere, you can draw a triangle with three right angles. But mathematics yeah. tells us that that can't happen. And maybe that's the area that you need to move to 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 show the, the complexity and uh, uh, how you rationalize these kinds of things. Yeah, it's a very interesting example. Well, I mean, so certainly our mathematical intuition is not certain, is fallible, like sense experience is fallible. And we've discovered we were wrong about certain things. We thought geometry has to be Euclidean. And we now know, of course, that there no, are non-Euclidean geometries. So, so it's not infallible, but, you know, just because it's not infallible doesn't mean it's not a, a very good source of information. So, what does it mean? Oh, sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, well just to finish, I mean, I, I guess what I think, I think, look, I think of the laws of mathematics as kind of like the laws of nature. You know, the, let's say the, the law of gravity constrains what can happen in our world, but only contingently, right? The law of gravity could have been different. But the laws of mathematics constrain that if you've got two things and you've got two things, you've got four things or, or that there can't be square circles. I think that is a substantive fact about reality that there can't be square circles. But it's not the laws of physics that determines that. It's the laws of mathematics. So I, maybe that conveys a little bit more the sense in which I think this is just a real concrete part of our universe. Even it, And that's what's so messed up about our current worldview, that it's not in our current worldview. It's something we all accept. But it's it's it doesn't have a place in our current worldview. Yeah, that's. So you said our intuition can be wrong. Yeah. But in, but in some sense, we have an intuition. And by the way, I agree that my I, I seem to have this intuition that there can't be square circles or that two plus two has a very specific answer. And that answer is four. I mean, I, I, yeah. I share that I share that sense of intuition with you. I, I share Matthew's sense of intuition that, um, you know, we've we've got a rhubarb crumble. And, and by the way, if you've got one and I don't uh, send it, you know, <laughs> but so so if we want a certain number of. Yeah, so, <laughs> so if we want equals, if we want equal size pieces, right there, there's, uh, there's only a few ways to get that. Well, yeah, maybe no. only one way to get that done. Right. But if if we're saying that our intuition about these things, you know, there can't be square circles. Then we, we're making a, a case that, you know, we have this 100 percent intuition that can somehow be wrong about very similar kinds of things, because it is possible for our mathematical intuition to be wrong. Sure, sure. Yeah, now, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's a great response to you. It's just the thing that is troubling me, if you see what I mean. But it's, it's that's yeah. a good segue, though, to, to fictionism, though, isn't it? You know, if our intuition is wrong... But it actually, but that intuition suits us practically in everyday life. What's the problem? 
Well, so moving on to fictionalism, I, d- I guess I, 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 d- I mean, I don't think I wouldn't want to say people should believe false things, which is maybe what you're implying there. I wouldn't want to say, oh, you know, if it's making you happy, you know, I, I think you should try and avoid false beliefs. And the fiction list, it does avoid false beliefs because they they take the beliefs, the core beliefs of the of, of the religion they're involved in to be false and they, they take them to be a fiction. So they, you know, they, this is no more deceit or self-deceit than, um, you know, when you go and watch a movie and you get involved in it. And, and a, lot, a lot of fictionalists have made analogies to that, actually. You know, going to a movie, you, you get involved in it. You, you might really gain all kinds of things from relating to the characters. But, you know, you don't believe it's true. And many fictionalists find, feel, feel the same way about um, their chosen religion. But just, I mean, just to come back to, if I may, you know, so how, how how I relate all this stuff to Christianity. So so as I say, I, I I think of religion as a practice, right? A practice, a way of relating to the transcendent, this moral and spiritual and mathematical uh, aspect <laughs> of reality. I think mathematics is in there. Um, You're gonna drag us back off over there. Aren't you? <laughs> let's, see let's see mathematics. Uh, so so. In the specific case of Christianity, I take it to be practice whereby one relates to the transcendent through the character of Christ and through the, the story of the gospel. So through this story in which God is identified with a naked, executed peasant, a person who shuns the wealthy and powerful and eats with lepers and outcasts. So I think that's a, you know, that's a powerful way of relating to the transcendent and a powerful way of anchoring one's spiritual life. Mm. So, th- so that's that, that that's really the core of the core of it for me. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I, I want to say something just kind of as preamble to my part of this conversation. I'll take a second. When you were on Unbelievable, uh, and we haven't talked much about that show, uh, that appearance on Unbelievable. I don't know if we'll talk a lot about it as we as we move on, but I had not come across the uh, philosophical richness that is the tradition of fictionalism, not just in regard to religion, right? There's a, uh, there's a lot of talk about fictionalism in philosophy with its application to other domains, right? Sure, yeah. It, and so when I was reading the, the SEP entry, sorry, some people won't know what that is, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, plato.stanford.edu for the listeners that might want to look it up. So in preparation for, for our talk here, I try, you know, I, I went to, to read more about religious fictionalism and the SCP entry came up. And, and there's a fictionalism it has a rich tradition outside just religion, religious fictionalism in philosophy, and I had not come across it in the past, probably not surprisingly because I'm not right. a professional philosopher, right? But I was I was inclined when I heard your unbelievable episode to give less weight to the importance of this idea of religious fictionalism maybe than I should have been, because when I started researching for this episode, it turns out that fictionalism has deep roots in philosophy that I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. And the SEP entry really cast the idea of religious fictionalism in a new light for me. Okay. Um, so I, you know, uh, I can see the benefit 
of the idea of um, using religion to uh, sort of create a framework uh, to to inculcate values uh, into our society, yeah. even even if the stories themselves don't hold hands with history, right? Yeah. They're, they're not in some sense historically valid. So I was not inclined to give that idea a lot of uh, a lot of value until I started realizing that we actually use fictionalism a lot in our everyday speech, which was, I think, pointed out in the SCP entry. Uh, I might say, let's pull out all the stops in regard to this podcast. And, you know, yeah. now some people might say that's an idiom rather rather than, um, you know, some sort of uh, um, some sort of metaphor. But I do I do think that there's an importance to metaphor that I didn't see in your work prior to sort of doing a little deeper dive. Right. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. And. I, th- I suppose, although I don't think the core beliefs of Christianity are literally true, I think I, I do think there are deep truths th- that are put across through these narratives. Um, so maybe I can say a little bit more about how I think about the climax of the Christian story in, in the resu- in the crucifixion and the resurrection to sort of spell out what I mean. I guess. It, your emails to Matthew was to make me think, you know, why the hell are you a Christian rather than uh, something else? So maybe, well, maybe if I tell a question, <laughs> I, I, hope I, I hope I didn't come across quite. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm exaggerating. But, but, but um, uh, there were people who, who pretty much phrased it like that. Uh, <laughs> Facebook and on the um, forums. So. So, so maybe I could just talk a little bit about, you know, what, the crucifixion and the resurrection signify for me. So, you know, I think that there are two crucial features for me of the um, of the crucifixion. So firstly, there's the the fact that God is not on the side of, in this story. God is not on the side of the powerful Roman Empire. God is on the side of the powerless, humiliated, executed peasant. Right. It's that kind of inversion of worldly values. So, you know, what does that signify in our own times? You know, I think it signifies God is not on the side of, you know, the the powerful elites that run our world, is not on the side of the tax-dodging multinationals and the corrupt dictators. God is on the side of, you know, the immigrants in cages, right? God is on the side of the victims of human trafficking. Uh, so so that's that's an important aspect of it. But the, the other important thing, I think, of the, the, uh, the crucifixion is the apparent inevitability that the bad guys win you know so i think for the the women watching jesus hang on the cross it must have been like ah the roman empire wins again you know we thought we thought maybe it'd be a bit different this time but you know the roman empire always wins nothing ever changes and you know i feel like many of us in the contemporary world think you know oh the one percent win again you know 2008 global crash maybe things will change but then ordinary people pay the price and things you know things never change so so that's really you know what 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 a large part of the good friday story to me but then moving to the resurrection for me what that signifies is is the hope against all odds that god's preferences will prevail that you know the corrupt forces that run our world won't have the last word so i think that's a very powerful narrative i think it's a narrative that inspired the peasant revolt of the 14th century, that inspired liberation theology in Central America. 
inspired the civil rights movement in the 60s. And, you know, I, I think that's a narrative I don't want us to lose. But I mean, I, I, I don't take it to be literally true. I, I, you just heard me talk about the preferences of God, talking about as though God were a kind of person. I don't literally believe the transcendent is a kind of person I'm sort of personifying. But I think engaging with that story does give us a deep and true, somehow give us a deep and true understanding of the nature of the transcendent. So there are, so there are deep truths there, even though they're not uh, the surface literal truths. Anyway, so that was very long winded, but I just thought I'd try and think about how to convey. And I think I didn't get into this really in the Unbelievable podcast. And I kind of regretted that afterwards, just what it is that appeals to me about Christianity. And I think it is that inversion of worldly values that identifying God with the the humiliated naked peasant. I mean, as St. Paul, Paul says in the start of 1 Corinthians, Christ crucified is um, folly of the world, something like folly of the world, but the wisdom of God. And I think, you know, that's that's that kind of real value and real truth in that narrative. I don't, you know, I, couldn't, I don't really care if it's literally true. It doesn't, I don't see how it affects my spiritual life, whether such and such miracle happened 2000 years ago. But still, that narrative has power, I think. Yeah, that was good. That, that, that deserves a silence after it, I think. Um, yeah. And so there's a there's a motivating element on there. You know, look after the, the needy uh, among yeah. you, which uh, certainly is uh, an, an attitude of, of Jesus when you when you read the New Testament. Yeah, I, I identify with that. So um, was there a comment you wanted to make, Andrew? Because I wanted to jump on a question. But maybe maybe one question, because. Uh, you know, uh, the listeners will know that it's hard for me not to ever follow if you give me the chance. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, I think the the obvious question that that the skeptical listeners will have, because the, the Christian listeners are all saying what they should rightfully be saying, that that even if you don't believe, you can find value in the story. Right. So, so I'm, I'm happy with that. But would you be just as happy out of curiosity as a, as a philosopher? I'm sure you've studied um, at some point, some sort of comparative religion, at least occasionally, you know, it comes up in the reading now and then. And so would you be just as happy for those people who are non-Christian but can find similar values in their own religious traditions? Are you, are you just as happy for them to be, uh, boy, okay, I'm, I'm going to go all the way uh, off of the edge here, and I'm probably going to get some splashback, but um, <laughs> for, for nonviolent for nonviolent Muslims, people people uh, uh-huh. in Islam that practice uh, the Muslim traditions exactly the way uh-huh. nonviolent Christians practice theirs, so you just as happy for them uh-huh. to find the same values in their own religions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of think, I suspect from what I've heard of in interviews, Reza Azan, I I I think he's he went from being an evangelical Christian to. Uh, returning to his uh, Muslim roots, and I think he has pretty much that that approach to to, to Islam. And yeah, I mean that's I mean that's absolutely fine. Obviously, if um, what I'm talking about is ways of relating to the transcendent rather than you know prizing certain specific beliefs, then then very, then yeah, I'm very much open to different ways of. I, I think a lot of um, a, lo- a lot of Jewish people I know have have you know have the same approaches me in the sense of you know going to synagogue involving themselves in the traditions w- without necessarily taking everything literally 
Um, and I suppose that's just, you know, I'm taking that that same approach to Christianity. I mean, let me let me say actually a comparison to another religion, Buddhism. Um, so, you know, I've had I've had a lot of a lot of back and forth with Buddhism in my time and I meditate every day. And, you know, I've got a hell of a lot of respect for Buddhism. But one reason I guess I I didn't become a Buddhist is because, it, at least in my experience of Buddhism in the West, it's almost wholly focused on personal, individual, spiritual development. Mm. And there's not much about power structures. There's not much about social injustice. There's not much about society. I mean, there are elements. I'm not saying they, people are going to email me saying that's nonsense. But the, you know, there are, but the, the core focus of the religion is you know individual self improvement. Whereas what I love about Christianity is the focus on community. The you know the central act of practice, the Eucharist, is symbolic eating and drinking together. You know the the Lord's prayer is said in the third person sorry in the first person plural you know our father uh so and it's you know it's it's always very much had a focus on poverty identifying with the poor identifying with outcasts social engagement so you know sometimes actually if i you know maybe i'd like a pick and mix religion where you have the sort of you know the buddhist the buddhist focus on meditation and stuff about the lack the absence of self and and maybe the, the the Christian focus on uh, community and poverty and loving your enemies and so on. But um, but but that's that, that's one reason I guess why I decided to go the Christian route rather than the Buddhist route. And it's not because I think Christianity is true and Buddhism is false. It's just because this I think there's things in there I value that I I couldn't get out of the Buddhism that I encountered in the West. <laughs> I I I I like that on answer and. Uh... Just one more thing about Buddhism. Again, you might think, you know, there's a lot of Western Buddhists who get a lot out of the practice but don't believe in rebirth. I mean, you might think what I'm doing is a little bit analogous to that, you know, getting a lot out of the mm. practice without necessarily believing in a literal resurrection. Sorry for interrupting you. Carry on. No, I, I like the point you made about the difference in focus between improving of the self and actually making some efforts to improve the lives of, of those around us. Uh, and uh, I think there's a, a, a beauty in, in that kind of attitude. And, uh, and I want what's the word? I don't know what word I'm looking for, but I, I just wanted to draw attention to that. And I think that's that's a glorious attitude for anyone to take, regardless mm. of, of what mm. your feelings are, of religion are. But what, what I'm hearing is in my mind is a lot of consternation from uh Christian literalists and that is the kind of Christian that I was so um, I said in the intro that, that you're from Durham and we we can't mention Durham without mentioning David Jenkins who I assume that you're you're familiar with mm, uh, who was, who was bishop bit. in Durham in uh, the mid 80s uh, to the to the mid 90s yeah so he I was so to, to kind of set the scene a bit I I grew up in a missionary environment in, in Africa so I arrived in in the UK when I left home as, a, as an 18 year old in 1988. Uh, so the UK culture was was a new culture to me because I'd not lived uh, in the UK apart from, uh -huh. from boarding school. So I, I found a church and then in 1989, David Jenkins 
hit the headlines with uh, his comments about the resurrection not being a, a physical resurrection, but it was a metaphysical resurrection and Jesus lived inside us of our, our followers and our attitudes towards helping others was us living out the resurrection of, of Jesus, which sounds a little bit about what you're saying, but it sounds more mystical. Mm-hmm. But that was devastating to me as, as a 19 year old. It just went against everything that I'd been taught growing up. And the the church minister uh, of the church that I went to was a Methodist church. He he endorsed this view. And I remember sitting in this room when he was uh, endorsing this view and uh, trying to be reassuring to all of us. But looking back the room, there were several people who were utterly devastated uh, by, by this as a revelation because they, like me, believe these things to be uh, to be literally true. So, yeah, devastating is really the only way to describe it. So what would you want to say to people listening who who are having a similar reaction to encourage them that actually you're not killing their world. You know, sometimes it's just very difficult, isn't it? People having very different approaches. And I sometimes think maybe fictionalism is the wrong word because it's sort of, it implies that the views are false. I guess for me, it's more, maybe, maybe a better word might be religious pragmatist that for me, the practice is, is important whether or not the, the beliefs are true so perhaps you know me and uh, a more traditional believer can be you know unite around the things we do agree on I mean there's a lot of as I said on the unbelievable podcast I, I really a lot of what N.T. Wright says although he's a much more conservative believer than me a lot of what he says really resonates with me about um, you know the, the 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 focus of orthodox christianity on the physical world and on um it's not about floating off to a heavenly realm it's about sort of bringing heaven and earth together building the kingdom of god on earth as it is in heaven as it were but of course yeah i mean there are deep disagreements and i suppose like i suppose it's it's a question of respect and maybe which church you go to i i, I recently went to a very evangelical church uh, just to try it out and I just couldn't do it I couldn't I couldn't get anything out of it I could you know because it was seemed so focused around the importance of belief and uh, literally believing and I just couldn't couldn't get anything out of it uh, whereas the churches I, I, I've generally gone to all my life you know that there's an openness and people are happy with different interpretations of what's going on and you know the gospel might draw out some some wisdom or from the gospel sorry the sermon might draw out some wisdom from the readings and relate that to everyday life and um, it's compatible with various different ways of understanding what's going on so yeah I suppose I just hope this is what I'm advocating is 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 something that's a neglected way of a neglected way of thinking about Christianity and I just want to open up to people the possibility that that might be something, you know, they could get a lot out of. But I'd understand if, you know, in a, in a, a very evangelical church, if they, you know, they have their ways of doing things, it's very important for them to emphasize belief. Maybe they wouldn't want me coming in and 
running in their Sunday school and teaching the kids about Christian fictionalism or something. You know, that's fair enough. So, so we I guess do it's on about... this podcast, though. We we want that. <laughs> <laughs> but then I at mean, the same time, what, what, I, what I love think... about the Church of England is it's so broad. Perhaps because of you know the unique circumstances of its origins, with you know the king wanting a divorce, and so it's so broad. You know, we have the very conservative churches. You've got the high the high the high church is more Catholic than Catholic. You've got very liberal churches I used to go to where they just made up the liturgy every week and it was more orthodox. To My approach was kind of the orthodoxy. So, you know, I love that broad church and um, I think maybe people don't realise it is as broad as it is. So I guess I'm just, it's about respect and I'm just opening up this alternative. But sorry, I interrupted you again. Um, no, no, but I was just saying, just to um, mirror what you said about... Uh, um going to church now i i wouldn't want my child to go into a church sunday school and be taught that evolution is a lie and, and the world is six thousand years old that would that would devastate me and fill me with rage so you know yeah, I, yeah. so you know sometimes the attitude is more important than, than arguing over the facts right yeah absolutely absolutely we can you know have in common what we have in common but respectfully allow people to do their own thing and run their churches how they want to as long as liberal christians like me are allowed to run churches how we want to you know or, or be at least be open to have uh people involved who have a more a, a more liberal less literal approach yeah that's one of the big frustrations for me um i, I was a uh the listeners i think heard i was a a very conservative Christian at some point in the past. In fact, I, uh -huh. uh, I belong to what by any reckoning was a cult. Uh -huh. So one of the things that frustrates me as an atheist now is I, I, there are still Christian values that I very much promote. I, you know, mm. I wouldn't lie to you uh, any more than you would like to me, even the most conservative Christian. So by you yeah. here, I mean the editorial you, if you will. So I, I wouldn't lie to you. I, I wouldn't cheat you in a business deal. I wouldn't mistreat your children or, or you know, have your wife cheat on me in some sort of extramarital. And, and by and large, I think that's true uh, for as many atheists as it is for Christians, right? I'm not claiming that I'm perfect. I'm certainly not. But I'm not less perfect than, than the people that are, um, you know, yeah. deep, deep Christians. And, and so if there, if there, if there's one thing that I wish everyone could take away, mm -hmm. it is that by and large, we are all much more similar than we are different, mm -hmm. even if we don't reach the conclusions the same way. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say, you know, I'm not saying, you know, why am I, why do I want to keep Christianity going? It's not because I think everyone's going to get, become really evil if, if they, if, if we forget about it, you know, it's just, well, it's it, two things really. I mean, one, what I've already talked about, I, I, I do, I am religious in the sense that I do believe in this um, transcendent spiritual reality. And I think it's important to have institutions that connect people up to that so that's 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 part of what it's about so it's not about telling people what they ought to do but about giving about facilitating spiritual practice um but secondly also i think just bringing people together is important you know that um it's hard there's very powerful forces in in contemporary society you know consumerism and um 
global capitalism and it's very powerful forces that it's hard to counter just as an individual being a good person and you know it's it's hard to make much of an impact something i i found out recently someone told me so you know rosa parks who's um started the civil rights movement by refusing to stand up on a bus for a white person i I grew up not far from that town actually oh really yeah but i've always thought of it and i don't know about you guys you know it was just a lone individual who just you know had had enough and you know couldn't take it anymore but in fact i was told by my sister actually in a when she did a that she learned when she did a community organizing course it was part of a it was part of a planned protest it was part of a civil rights action involving martin luther king you know it was a completely planned uh, thing and you know i think y- you rarely get change until you bring people together and you organize nothing happens you know there's such powerful forces in 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 society in the world we live in that nothing happened unless you organize so i think you know that's part of the value of religion to me you know getting people together in the community on a regular basis of all socioeconomic backgrounds you know you're not getting together because of what you can get out of each other you're just getting together to be there as a community have a cup of tea afterwards and then you know naturally when you do that you start to think what what can we do in this community you know and the church in the uk is running you know most of the food banks my church has a has a eco festival every year that's brought together a lot of environmental groups in the area actually that hadn't hooked up before and i think that's just you know getting people together and uh working out how you can, how you can make a difference and i don't deny actually I mean, there may be there may be um non-religious ways of doing this uh, i reviewed a, a very good book by philip kitcher called life after faith um where he he was raised religiously and rejected as an atheist but he he sees the value in religious institutions and he tries to encourage us in this book to set up secular alternatives that can play the role in the community that that religion uh once played so so that, you know you know that, that that's one that's what one way forward although it doesn't doesn't seem to have sort of caught on for the moment but um yeah I'll loudly echo that though because um i think one of the things that I almost hate to acknowledge this out loud, and I find that I have to almost every episode. Um, one of the one of the failures of uh, sort of the skeptical movement. I think Sam Harris is pretty open about this, uh, uh, among other uh, atheist thinkers, is that we have not managed to build the sort of community that that religion has built. Yeah. Now, yeah. I I think there are real reasons for that. I, I think um, in the United States, one of the least trusted, in fact, the least trusted social class in the United States, according to Pew Research, is atheists. We, we actually fall behind. Uh, we actually fall behind uh, criminals that, uh, you know, former felons. Right. Yeah. I, I, right. So now, look, I, I don't <laughs> I, I think there's a whole social injustice there. And we don't have time to talk about the social injustice of of. Um, of institutionalized prison systems and, you know, how that, how prison systems have gone corporate and all that. So you can't do that. But, you know, it, it's, it's funny to find myself as an atheist, someone uh, who, who I broadly agree with Christian values. You know, it's, it's, it's funny to find myself as one of the least trusted 
people in the yeah. in the United States, right? But and and I think that that is actually part of the reason that we have failed uh, to build social structure because, um, like the LGBTQ community, we are still fighting for an open place in society, mm-hmm. and it is incredibly difficult to build large socially valuable. Uh, communities when you're still fighting to just be recognized uh, as a decent human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there's yeah. there's my two cents for what. Yeah. It's worth if it I guess that sense. that's that's very interesting. Although that although that I guess that wouldn't apply in the UK as much. I don't think there's. I don't sure. think that would explain why secular institutions haven't arisen uh, in a European context. Um, mm. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, Sam Harris. Yeah, I like Sam Harris's work saying, you know, that focusing on the, the importance of spirituality and spiritual practice for uh, secular atheists. But perhaps what he's focused less on is 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 the community institutions. You know, I think mm-hmm. I personally think there's a real role to play there. Whether you do it in a secular way or or you do it in a religious way, but I think there is something, um, yeah. We miss that. Uh, you know, we've talked about it uh, a number of times in the in the past on other shows. That one of the things that that we as uh, former Christians miss is that sense of community that you're yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Can I just go I think, about, say? Oh, sorry. No gum. No gum. Um. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the uh, the the benefits of uh, religious practice is it provides a a motivation and a focus for people to gather together uh, and, and then they're there and then you've got this focus for your your community thing and and I yes. think it, it's that that separate uh, uh, commonality of belief uh, and, and worship that that gets people there so there's there's a focus there's a drive there's a motivation yeah. and then and out of that springs the the community work and the community fellowship because it, it doesn't always work to say let's all, all get together and, um, yeah. and and do something good for community you, you need uh, you need something dare I say it bigger to to bring people together I live in a yeah. coastal t- town on the on the west coast of the UK and every couple of months there's a community beach clean and you see the photos on the local news uh, Facebook page but when you see the numbers of people turning up for for that it's fewer than the number of people who are going to church every Sunday morning yeah yeah no I think you can I think you're right there actually that must be part of the explanation it's hard to just inspire people to just get together isn't it and you know I think I think that it's just it's a shame because what I I feel like what what you have in a religious context is it's perhaps the only time you meet up with people and it's not because what you can get out of them. And I don't mean that in a cynical way, right? You know, we meet people because we like them uh, or we like, we have a common interest. We like spending time together and that's, you know, that's obviously fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but still it's, it's because of what you can get out of the situation. Whereas, you know, in a religious context, you're just there just because people live nearby you know i mean that's why you're getting together it's not because of uh but i yeah i I see what you're saying about it's a good point that maybe hadn't fully occurred to me uh matthew that it's yeah how how do you how do you get people to do it (laughs) you maybe need something else to get mm. to to get them Mm. but then there's there's a bigger question that and is it is that it does become uh 
an exclusive club because now that I no longer subscribe to any of the core beliefs of Christianity, I I no longer attend church. So I don't go to church. Yeah. So so the people there that, that I know, I see them extraordinarily rarely because yeah. I I don't identify with with what it is that they're doing corporately in, yeah. in a church yeah, building. Yeah. Yeah. And and I and um Andrew and I get occasionally contacted through the podcast that we do more specifically ask an atheist anything than this podcast but we um we we do because there's a there's a book which is a critique of the core beliefs of christianity it's connected to this podcast also called yeah, still unbelievable yeah, yeah and um we've been connected contacted sorry occasionally by uh, a few people who are exiting from the core beliefs of christianity and they find themselves in a in a in the inverse situation, and they're losing uh, a community uh, because they they can no longer subscribe to that. And um, I think for people like myself, and people like for people like those who are exiting the core beliefs of Christianity, um, but you get you still attend church. I haven't asked you how how regularly. You feel feel free to answer that shortly. Um, but you you do still go and. I'm assuming that there's some form of community that you appreciate from from attending uh, church as a as a fictionalist. Where do may, maybe churches need to think more broadly and more liberally uh, about people like me and people like those who are exiting that and maybe there is a benefit to the church of embracing fictionalism rather than re- rejecting mm-hmm. fictionalism because there is more that they can offer to the community. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, so firstly, I suppose I do attend church, I guess, a couple of times a month. I, I, I mean, so I, I used to attend an incredibly liberal church in I found my perfect church when I was in living in Liverpool. Whereas, as I said, it was it, my fictionist approach was kind of more the orthodoxy. Uh, this was St. Bride's. I should maybe give them a plug. And they used to wear kind of rainbow dog collars for a uh, and it was awesome. pride and stuff and uh, oh that's fantastic uh, and sorry i think that's fantastic uh, it's brilliant <laughs> i think that's really cool and and um and, and they used to sort of make up the liturgy and actually the, the the priest didn't often say the sermon it was said by someone different from the congregation each week and then they had themes for example one of the themes was living with suffering where someone who was living with a particular suffering each week um did the sermon and so someone with HIV, someone with early dementia, someone with autism, and it's absolutely the most moving thing I've ever come across. But I guess, uh, I guess you know, in general, the church I go to are just sort of run-of-the-mill uh, Anglican churches that, you know, in my experience, are quite open and there's, there, there tends to be a, a fair number of people there. When I speak to, if you, you know, you, you rarely get into the discussion of belief, but I tend to meet quite a lot of people who have roughly the same view of um, not taking things literally or or another approach that's slightly more moderate is taking things literally, but having not not going so far as to say you believe, but maybe you, you perhaps hope it's true or you you sort of engage with the possibility of its truth. So so there's a this this approach is sometimes called non-doxastic approach approaches to um religion i've got a blog post called um 
religion but not as we know it where i distinguish in cases of interest anyone these different possibilities so fictionalism would be the more extreme approach where you you, you actually think it's false but then the the, the, the non-doxastic approach would be well i think it might be true i don't have enough evidence to fully believe but i i sort of live in hopeful commitment that it's true so the approach of for example william alston or howard schneider that's a double barrel surname i can't remember his first name but, and, you know, one of the things William Olson talks about is is that they're both U.S. philosophers mm. about, you know, college, when you do have this intense pressure in some American religious communities to believe and then co- kids go to college and they feel I don't really feel like I believe in that strong sense. And they feel they have to leave. And as you say, that can lead to terrible turmoil about losing your community and so on so yeah i certainly think religious communities ideally would be open to fictionalist approaches but if not that at least be educating people that they can have this this approach that's not disbelieving but is like is saying it's sort of agnosticism i guess saying i don't know if it's true but i'm 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 living i'm choosing to live in hopeful commitment that it's true and surely that's that's not offensive. I, I don't see how one could find that kind of position problematic or offensive. So so if the church could educate people, look, that's a that's a that's a way of doing it. That's an option. Then I think they you know they'd, they'd lose a lot lot less people. Whereas you know I think the, the way people think about religion, it is or do I believe this is true? Like religion is a sort of a theory of reality, and you're when you decide to sign up sign up to religion, you think you know do I hold that theory of reality whereas i think it's you know it's it's largely about it's a culture and spiritual practice and community and tradition so you know yeah it's 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 not going to solve all the problems you're alluding to because you know there are still there are different religions and people won't just won't want to be part of a religious community and that and that's fine but i i, I certainly think there's a lot more one can do to open oneself up to a diversity of you know when you think about it, it's just it is weird defining cultural identity and community inclusion on belief, because belief is is for one thing involuntary. You know, you can't choose what to believe. You just right. it's an involuntary response to what you think is the evidence. And so it's it's very cruel to exclude someone from a community because of what they can't help. And I mean, I'm partly persuaded by people like Karen Armstrong that it's actually this focus on belief is a sort of modern corruption, although I'm not a historian, I'm not, I'm not certain about. But yeah, I certainly think it's it's problematic. Sorry, I not wonder, to be no, no, no. It's, look, two things. First, I kept hearing Pascal's wager a second ago. It's one of the one of the things that Christians will will say quite a lot is, okay, fine, you don't believe in Christianity, but um, surely it's good to live as a Christian because there there are good values there. And Pascal's wager almost always comes up, right? Why not, why not live that way, even if you don't believe? And so I, like you, I don't understand the, for, for those who are inclined to be agnostic, but practice Christianity, Christianity often backs itself with Pascal's wager. So I don't understand the objection. But yeah. I read your blog post and one of the things I found fascinating, Greek for me, by the way, was uh, like uh, 31 years ago. Okay, so semester break was a long time ago. Um, but one of the things I found interesting in your blog post was a discussion of the word faith, mm. right? And and uh, that that faith at some point 
in, so when we think about first century Greek, right, faith was not a verb. Right? Yeah. And and so um, it was. Uh, it, oh, and, no, faith was a verb, I think. Faith uh, was, was a, a verb. verb. Right, right, right. But, Sorry. but in, in English, it's not a verb. Yeah. Right. I get uh, confused by that as well. <laughs> yeah. No, my apologies. And that's absolutely right. Um, I, I wonder if you would take a second because faith is faith is it, it, what you were talking about there. It's very central to, to the Christian religion, how we see faith. Right. You, you've got to um, you've got to believe these core tenets. Right. And and if you don't, um, somehow you're broken. Right. Your your, your God yeah. detectors messed up and, and you and uh and and uh, there's some sort of fellowship issue that that follows on from that. Um, and so I thought that one of the really interesting things there was that the way we use faith now is is very different from the way the word faith is planted in. Well, you know, in, in Greek texts, whether you argue that they're first century or not, you know, wherever, wherever you think the books fell on the timeline didn't actually yeah. matter. And I wonder if you'd a while I wonder ago. if you'd yeah, I wonder if you'd talk about that for a second if you if you can. I'm sort of sure. asking you to speak extemporaneously on something pretty complex. But if you would, I think it's probably useful to list Sure. Yeah, so the so the thought is that um I mean the Greek word that we translate as faith, pistis doesn't actually mean belief in the modern sense. It rather has connotations of commitment or engagement. And and we often translated it, as you say, as believe, right? Because in, in Greek, you can say to faith, I faith, you faith, he, she, it faiths. You can't say that in English, although I just did paradoxically. Uh, so it was often translate, <laughs> it was translate, translated as believe. Um, but now in the 16th, 17th century, when the Bible was first translated, um, that wasn't a bad translation because the word belief had a different meaning then. It was had connotations of to prize or to hold dear. So Karen Armstrong, for example, quotes, um, oh, which Shakespeare plays that I can't recall offhand now, but the character being told to believe not thy disdain. Uh, so don't have oh, your heart cherish. in your mm. disdain. Yeah. Don't cherish your disdain. He's the character is Bertram. I think is feeling disdain for the low born Helena. And, he, and he's told believer. So the word was much closer to this idea of in Chaucer. We find I can't remember the Chaucer references off. I forget it. Uh, but it was much closer to the German believen to love this idea of committing. And, and so actually Karen Armstrong thinks. And this is how I like to think about it, actually. We should we should actually think of the creed as not I believe, but I commit. I put my heart into this. So 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 when the Bible was first translated, uh, belief was not a bad translation for um, for pistis, the Greek word for faith. But then as the scientific revolution progresses, belief comes slowly to be associated with you know, cold-blooded intellectual assent to a proposition about reality and ends up having the, you know, the word belief as we have it today. And so now when you when you read the Gospels, you think, oh, Jesus really cared, you know, what, what your theory of reality was, you know, and um, what what propositions you sign up to. And salvation depends on, you know, whether you have the correct theory of reality, which is kind of bizarre. Whereas, you know, it's it's not at all clear that 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 was exactly a correct translation. Um, so, who I mentioned before, uh, Howard Schneider, 
That's his surname. It's a double-barreled surname, Howard Schneider. Has a very interesting paper, Mark and Faith, which is um, textual analysis of Mark's gospel. And he makes quite a compelling case that actually when Jesus talks about faith, what he's meaning is a kind of resilient commitment, a kind of a resilient religious commitment in the face of adversity. Because all of the people he praises, it's in these contexts. It's not about what theory of reality they have. It's in these contexts where people have really stuck out and really gone to the, gone to the, what's the expression? Gone to the nth mile, gone to the nth degree. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, um, I think it's arguable that this is something of a modern corruption, this defining religious identity in terms of belief. Yeah, that would be the idea. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I, it was one of those things when I was, um, you know, I was doing preparation for this episode. I don't think in the, uh, in, in the five years of theological training I went through, I was double majoring, so I wasn't, uh, you know, just, um, I managed to cram four years into five. Uh, so, uh-huh. so, but when you know, in in all of those religious classes, you know, dozens of them to get a to get a bachelor's, right? And, and in all those religious classes, I didn't come across this idea, including a semester of Greek, right? And one and and so it's mm. it's it's very interesting, sort of how uh, how deeply this idea that that. Um, Faith is this modern this modern idea of faith, right? Faith is this thing I this thing I believe, right? It's, it's very interesting how deep that runs, uh, rather yeah. rather than rather than more the idea of commitment. Now I was never yeah. good enough at Greek to actually analyze this at, at sort of a first century level. You know, to to I'm not I'm not uh, language scholar enough to decide for myself, but no, I mean, just neither. Yeah, but just accepting the proposition, right? Mm. Just just giving it its best view. Um, if that if that's right, if how we use faith is very different today from what it was then, it does sort of give us the opportunity to re-examine a lot of the way we do commitment mm. to to any world to any worldview, but especially Christianity, since that's where Pistis comes from. Yeah, and I mean, just while we're on the history and whether. I mean, so there's this question about when you're proposing fictionalism, for example, are you Mm. proposing a radical change to religion? Are you being revisionary? It doesn't seem to me a problem. You know, one option is just to say, yeah, sure, I'm I'm doing it in a new way. If other people want to do as well, uh, what's the problem? But I think it's interesting ways in which it's maybe less of a radical change than one might think. So one is, you know, what we've just been discussing about the, the focus on belief is perhaps a, a modern corruption. But also something I think we've forgotten is that I, I'm inclined to think a kind of fictionalism about the personal characteristics of God has always been a part of mainstream Christianity right back to the early church fathers. So we have people like uh, Oregon and Gregory of Nyssa, who uh, these people who are part of what we call apophatic or negative theology. You know, people who think that we can't know anything about the nature of God, right? God is literally unknowable. Mm. Uh, and if we can't know anything about the nature of God, then God can't literally be wise or, um, uh, you know, powerful. If, if human predicates 
don't apply to God, then God can't literally be a person. So I'm inclined to think we can interpret these people as embracing a kind of fictionalism that they think, you know, we, we talk about God, for example, as the loving parent or as as a kind of person for the practice. But they didn't literally believe God was. They thought God was beyond human category. So, I mean, you can't I don't want to exaggerate this. I got into I had a very angry blog post uh, on my TLS paper by uh, the biologist Jerry Coyne saying, oh, what? So you're saying people didn't believe in the resurrection or uh, I read that, actually. So I wrote. So so the reason I wrote this blog post, uh, religion, but not as we know, was trying to clarify. So so I certainly think people in history believe literally believed in the resurrection. But so to that extent, the fictionalist is proposing something new. But my kind of fictionalism about God, where I don't literally think God is personal, but I do think there is a, a reality there uh, that we talk about as though it were a person. I think that is, is not so much a radical, that, that has always been a part of mainstream Christianity going right back, I think. Yeah, I sort of, I, I sort of agree with part of this because if we, if we, cast ourselves back a little hard to do because we live in the days of cell phones and Skype and that sort of thing. But if, if we cast ourselves back to the first century and we're listening to the apostle Paul at some point in one of his missionary journeys, right? And, and the, the story he's relaying at the moment is that he, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus Right. So it's not, very, not a hard story to imagine. Right. We can imagine sitting around listening to a to a colleague or, or uh, you know, a public figure relaying a story. It's pretty easy. Surely not everyone had the same sense of commitment that Paul actually saw Jesus versus Paul's just mm. a Paul's just a little nutty right there. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, and so. You know, surely even then, if, if you think that, that, you know, if you give the story its best philosophical view and just just say that it's true and Paul's a real person and he's going around telling yeah. his personal story, it's not hard to imagine that and to think surely not everyone was equally committed yes. to to Paul's notion that he'd seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. I mean, I'm inclined to think it it's, it, it is a modern obsession for understandable reasons since the scientific revolution to you know focus on what do you literally believe and i'm inclined to think you know historically it was maybe just a bit more messy so it wasn't that people didn't believe you know thought it was maybe just not something that was really necessarily they had a clear worked out view on so i mean one liberal Christian who's been a big, so I guess the big influences on me, Marcus Borg, who, you know, roughly has the kind of view that I've articulated today of Christianity and also John Dominic Crossan. Um, so, so one point John Dominic Crossan makes is, you know, in, in the Roman Empire, there's all this talk of Caesar being born of a god and riding on chariots through the skies and so on. Now, did people literally believe that or was it understood to be a sort of fiction or was it something you said you believed? In? I'm kind of think maybe it was just a bit, it was a bit indeterminate. You know, it was people just didn't sort of sit there and think what well, in the say they didn't, it wasn't a priority in the way it is in, in the contemporary world to think, what do I literally believe? 
so I'm kind of think it was you know it, it was a lot it was a lot messier and um, maybe the you know I, I certainly think Paul I'm inclined to think reading Paul's letters he does literally believe a lot of it but it's difficult for me to tease the end between the the the, the, the end of the literal beliefs and the start of the metaphors you know and um, yeah. I think that's a lot less clear than people often think right and and even if Paul did even if he was 100% committed to it, because there are all sorts of memories I have that seem mm. uh, potentially improbable to other people, right? But yeah. I'm committed to those memories. They are the ones I have. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and so even if Paul was completely committed to it, um, there, the, we could easily imagine other people that yeah. that relay the story without his level of commitment yeah. because they find some value in the story, even if they think that particular part to be fictional. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Matthew. Um, <laughs> I was enjoying listening to that, that, that conversation. <laughs> I don't think I've got anything like of value that I could, could add to it. <laughs> well, listeners will have to draw their own uh, conclusions about whether it I, I'm, I'm sure they've got me sussed <laughs> out. Uh, already and um, i've i've been going through some of the responses that that dedicated christians had to your your episode uh philip so i'd just like to pull out uh, one uh -huh. set of questions that one person asked i haven't got i'm not going to go through any other questions so it's just these two questions that i wanted to ask you so first do these questions accurately represent your position and then would you would you like to address the concern that the questioner has so i've got a question here from from a listener uh, someone on the forums known to both uh, uh, andrew and my, myself who responds to to unbelievable on a regular basis anyway so the questions are why does philip denigrate certainty and why does he maintain that certainty and humility are in opposition to one another I love not... certain. Sorry, gone. Yeah, I was going to say I'm not really sure what part of the episode on of unbelievable that you're on this uh -huh. is is addressing. I can't remember what you might uh -huh. have said that, that think, prompted these questions. I think I was yeah I was talking a lot about our need to be humble about what we can know about transcendent reality. Um, I mean I love certainty. I just think sadly we don't have very much of it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, you know. You know, I, I mean, I think Descartes got it pretty much right that, you know, we're, the only thing we're really certain of is the only thing I'm really certain of is, is the existence of my own conscious mind, you know, and maybe it's mathematical, maybe some mathematical and logical truths and everything else. I, I think we have to trust certain experiences, hope for the best. And so I think, you know, I just think that sadly the human situation, the human epistemological situation, that is to say, our situation with respect to knowledge is incredibly frail and it's not what we'd like it to be. And I think both, you know, the dogmatists of religion and the dogmatists of atheism so often overestimate human certainty. And, um, and so, to, so to that extent, I think, I think we need to be humble about what we can know. And yeah, certainly, I mean, I can't imagine... I'm very interested in the the kind of arguments that more conventional Christians put forward for the the resurrection and stuff. I find it really really interesting to think about. I can't imagine finding those arguments so compelling that you 
you know, believe with 90% certainty or something. I mean, you know, even if there's some kind of case there and, um, you know, I don't accept the case in any for a second, but even if you could put some kind of case, you know, it's hard to see. So I, I think people are exaggerating the level of confidence it's rational hmm. for humans to have in what they believe. Uh, so um, I have a, in my new book, Galileo's Error, actually, I talk a little bit about in the final chapter, Dave, David Hume, the great skeptic from philosophy uh, from the 18th century. But he thought the real value of skepticism is, is reminding us how precarious human knowledge is and countering hmm. dogmatism. And he talk, you know, he says he's talking in his own time in the 18th century. And he says, people are so certain of what they believe and they don't want to hear the arguments of others and they block it out and it makes them uncomfortable. And they try and make themselves more and more certain so they don't have to be bothered by other people's views. And it kind of reminds me of the times we're living in today a little bit. Uh, yeah, he, thinks, he thinks you do a bit of philosophy and you realize, you know, I don't even know if there's a table in front of me. You know? yeah. Right. If I've got hands. I might be in the matrix, and then you, and then you, and then that this naturally counters dogmatism because you think, God, if my even the belief that there's a table in front of me is is not certain, you know, my political or, or religious beliefs are, are so much less certain. So yeah, I just think the human situation is epistemological situation is very frail, and we should have an attitude of humility that reflects that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wish Lovely. I could be a lot more certain about <laughs> about everything. Like life would be so much simpler if we could be confident uh, of our certainty. And I think, if anything, my my exit from from Christian and Christian firm Christian belief has has taught me that that we should just embrace the fact that we we can't always be certain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. I think that's good. That's good. And, um, I think that's why, in a way, it makes much more sense to think of religious faith as a matter of commitment, because you can, you know, you can say if you are, if you want to be involved in religion, you can say, look, I don't know, but I'm going to commit to this path. Uh, or if you're non-religious, if you're, you know, if at some point with your political views or your scientific views or your marriage or whatever, you, you know, you never know for certain, but you can just say, right, I'm prepared to commit now. And I think I, I kind of think that's a healthier way to think about these things in terms of, you know, a commitment rather than belief or certainty. And that's very nice. We are, I get the sense that that we're winding toward a close. And uh, Matthew uh, had in the, in the show notes uh, the opportunity to briefly tease uh, a conversation about uh, panpsychism, and and that's been another. So I just finished a book actually about consciousness in which uh, in which you were quoted uh, about panpsychism. So oh, your, right. your views are yeah, your views are getting a lot of play. <laughs> what book um, was that? Uh, I will have to link it in the show notes because of okay. terrible no titles. No. Um, <laughs> it, it was a, a brief introduction to consciousness. Is the is the um, carry oh, on the title? Yes, 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 yes. That's right. Do you remember the the exact title? Because I'm terrible. I think it's called sometimes. conscious. That's right, conscious. And 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 then there's the bit after the the colon that I said a second ago. Um, and and so I I don't know if we got time uh, to go into uh, thoughts about panpsychism, and it takes us pretty far away 
from from this topic, but uh, if you're willing at some point in the not too distant future, we'd love to have you over on 4A to talk about panpsychism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, we've got this. I've got this book coming out, and I'm actually trying to get a, you know, to do as many podcasts to come out around the time of publication, which is uh, November November 5th in the US and November 7th in the UK. So, yeah, I mean, maybe we could work something out on that. Well, we have some listeners who would be uh, dribbling from the mouth at the thought. Oh, yeah? Of yeah. So yeah. If, if we yeah. can. So that's the ask an atheist anything thing, or no? Yeah. Yes, that'll, yes, that'll be yeah. ask an atheist yeah. anything uh, podcast that, that we yeah. also. I would love to have that conversation. I, yeah. I would probably be well out of my depth, but would learn quite a lot. So I would love to love to do that with you if you would be up for it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, let's. Uh... Excellent. Let's yes. let's drop that as a as a teaser then to to our listeners. Make sure you subscribe to Ask an Atheist Anything because at some point before the end of the year we'll we'll have Philip back. That would be brilliant. Just one one thing on that while we're in this context, I'm I'm always keen to emphasise in the context of panpsychism and consciousness that you know cause people think there are these unfortunate cultural connotations between panpsychism and. Uh, new age spirituality and mm, um, mm, mm. Um, yeah. i just think the the attempt to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview is nothing to do with religion or spirituality i mean a lot of a lot of the contemporary people defending panpsychism these days are complete atheists you know with you know very scientific motivations and um, just see it as a you know consciousness is a phenomenon we know is real and we have to find a way of fitting it into our scientific worldview somehow um, and so it's, it's it's nothing to do so although I do independently have some kind of spiritual leanings that we've been talking about today I do see that as kind of separate from the um, the, the problem of consciousness and a, and a focus on that but yeah but anyway yeah, so thank you for that a... clarification. I certainly belonged to a branch of Christianity that would have rejected as too close to New Age anything that you would have just said about about panpsychism. So thank you for that clarification. I understand panpsychism um, in in terms of in terms of scientific commitment. I understand it the same way you do. Uh, that there's you know the, the, we're not talking about New Age spiritualism or or uh, you know, there's there's not any appeal to mysticism here. There's yeah. an attempt to to understand deeply an important part of the human condition. The, you know, the the me of I or whatever, right? Our consciousness, and uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that needs not that needs not appeal to um, you know to to some dualism or you know we we are trying to investigate that in a in a in a sensible sort of hard-headed way, we're we're not very good at it yet because it is a hard problem. Yeah. Um, yeah but that but so the nature of that foray conversation would be uh, sort of with those ground rules in mind. There's no there's no accusation of um, you know new age spiritualism or or whatever. In fact, uh, one quote from the book I'll, I'll have to do this sort of loosely paraphrased is that what we know of the of the physical world, our, uh, you know, our ideas about, uh, uh, about laws of physics and chemistry and science, that sort of thing. Um, even if consciousness is, is something else, or even if the physical world emerges from consciousness, 
there's there's no reason to think that the physical world is different than what we perceive it to be. Right. Yeah. And um, so my apologies to the author for not being able to uh, to work that uh, more clearly. But I finished the book at like one thirty at night holding the baby. So. <laughs> so <laughs> but so no, so no. November five and November seven uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. And what's the what's the title of your upcoming book again? It is Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. So uh, um, really looking forward to it. Sounds um, intriguing. In, um, in, in fact, um, if we get to do the 4A episode and your publisher would be willing, I'd love to buy an advanced copy just to read it before the, uh, before the show, if, if such a thing is possible. Yeah, sometimes sure. you can do that kind of thing yeah. and sometimes you can't. We've got these, uh, we've got these pre-publication copies that are um, you know, not the final versions, but sort of bound up. So um, we could, yeah, I, I could get, send you one of those. Oh, I'd, I'd be happy to buy one. Uh, and, you know, just to because I'd like to be able to understand the, the thoughts as deeply as possible. Right. Before the, you know. Yeah. So, um, so Matthew, are we wrapping here? Um, I, I yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying to make a music based joke there, but my, my brain <laughs> failed me. <laughs> <laughs> God, you need to do it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But, I should yeah, probably I do some help. childcare in any case. But, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah Andrew's bundle of consciousness is probably calling. <laughs> uh, calling for it. Uh, I just have one more question for you, Philip, and it's sure. a light-hearted end of show question, and it's sure. absolutely not related to any fruit-based operating systems. I, 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 promise, <laughs> I promise you that. Um, do you watch The Good Place, and do you approve of its treatment of oh, philosophy? Oh, I haven't. No, I should do. I should do. I haven't got around to watching that yet. Why? What? It's uh, tell me what it gives a bad. A bad rap. To I, I don't. I don't think it does. But I mean, the basic premise of the good place is the it opens up with with somebody dying and they meet uh, Ted Danson, who assures them that they've arrived in the good place because they've been a been a good person. But it becomes apparent throughout the series that uh, the, yeah. the, this this girl who's been assured she's arrived in the good place doesn't think she deserves to be in the good place. Uh, and, and in fact, minutes. she's not. <laughs> well, I didn't want to give a season. Oh, oh don't oh, give it away. <laughs> oh, so, oh, but yeah. Oh god, I was just gonna say I'll watch it. And uh, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I, maybe I'll watch some of that, and uh, if we if we do another podcast, then I'll I'll give you my verdict. Yeah, they're <laughs> on to season three, so yeah, things move on and, and, and change a lot. But these people arrive, and they think they're in a. There's been a. Um, what's what I'm looking for? Um, um, there's a mistake in... yes it's right, been right. a mistake yeah so they, they've they've been uh, replaced with the real deserving person who happened to share the, share their name uh-huh. so but there's one one of the characters is a, a philosopher and the the trope around him is he is so tied up in his philosophy he's incapable of making a decision because he right. he, he, he keeps uh uh, referring to different philosophers over different situations, and the the, uh-huh. the end result is he he can't choose uh, anything. Uh-huh. And there's one point where uh, a form of torture is he's given two hats, 
and, and he has to choose which hat is going to be his hat, and he, he, he just can't do it. <laughs> but the the interesting thing about the the show, so I think I mentioned not a professional philosopher, right? But as far as I can tell, uh, when they do have, it's very lighthearted, these philosophical conversations, but when they do have them, the writers have made a real attempt to be fair to compatibilism or to utilitarianism. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they, they name philosophers uh, regularly. You know, you've got, you've got uh, Kant or Descartes, you know, and, and so uh-huh. there is a real, uh, a real philosophical underpinning uh, to the show where they're, where they're trying to grapple uh, with life's pretty big questions. And uh-huh. one of the real successes of the show is that they're sort of able to do this without ever taking the show too seriously. Right. Oh, that sounds great. I, I can't believe I haven't been watching this. I, I'll have to check it out. And Just the episodes on the are in- short. They're only about 20 minutes long each episode as uh-huh. well. Very, very short. All right. Yeah. That's handy if you've got kids. Yeah, on, on the indecision of philosophers, I guess, I guess I'm inclined to think actually there's more consensus in philosophy than there is in economics. And we let them rule the world, so you know. <laughs> that is a great punch. That I, I like that. That is that is fabulous. So yeah. <laughs> I I think that's that's it from me. If, great. Um, uh, any roundup comments from either of you two? I think no. I've really enjoyed that discussion. I think uh, that's great. I think I'm sorted. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for. Yeah, thank you for uh, being on. We've sort of talked about a uh, a lot of things today: the, the mm-hmm. nature of mathematics and uh, and religious fictionalism. Yeah. Um, and while I'm still not quite sure where I stand in regard to religious fictionalism, I certainly understand it better as a result of this conversation. And I thank you. Uh, oh, that's I, great. Thank you for taking that. Um, well, well, thank you for letting me have the chance to. I, I did feel I wanted to clarify more of the content of my actual practice than I did in the Unbelievable podcast. So it was nice to have an opportunity to think about that and talk about that in a little bit more detail. It's quite short, isn't it? The, the un, when you when you're on Unbelievable, um, you know, we think of uh-huh. the shows as being an hour and a half because that's the time slot they take up, but the the amount of conversation that you actually have is it is a lot shorter than that because uh-huh. there are announcements uh-huh. and commercials and you know the the person that you're talking to um, sort of is going to take up at least half the time and and yeah. because it's nailed into quite a uh, quite a narrow radio slot it's sort of easy for listeners to walk away misunderstanding um, that's not always the case and it's not an implicit mm-hmm. criticism of unbelievable I think it's a great show. Uh, and I listen every week, but it is possible just to not get out all the things that you'd like to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so you're welcome back anytime uh, here on Still Unbelievable. And Philip, right before we close, I know that uh, you've got the, your book coming out on November 5th and uh, in the U.S., November 7th in the U.K. And maybe you'd like to take a second and uh, tell us briefly about the book. Yeah. So the book's called. Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. And it's really about the problem of consciousness, the difficulty of trying to work out how to 
integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview, how it is exactly brains manage to produce feelings and experiences and pleasure and pain. So I think what's distinct about the view, I think it's generally taken these days as a serious scientific problem, the problem of consciousness. But I think one very common reaction is to say, okay, you know, there is a problem here, but we just need to do more neuroscience and we'll work it out. And, you know, and I think the reason people think that is is because they look to the the great success of physical science and explaining more and more of the universe we live in. And so that, you know, that gives them confidence that we just need to carry on in the same way and we'll one day crack the problem of consciousness. But what, what I try to argue is that the irony here is that actually the reason science has been so successful is precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness. And, and Galileo is pretty explicit about this. So that really Galileo kicks off the scientific revolution by dividing nature into the quantitative mathematical world that we can describe with mathematics, the domain of natural science, and then the qualitative world of consciousness that's outside of the domain of science. So that was the whole setup from the start. And we've kind of forgotten about those philosophical underpinnings that the whole project was premised on ignoring consciousness. So I think if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this this problem of explaining consciousness in terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to deal with quantities rather than qualities. So I think really, if, if, if we want now want a science of consciousness, I think we now really need to rethink what science is and rethink those philosophical underpinnings. So there's a, there's a big story there, but that's the kind of that, that's the start of it. Matthew, do you want to um, uh, do you want to talk about the ways to get in touch uh, or do you want to leave that to me? Uh, um, yes. Yeah, so, um, well, yeah, I, I just wanted to close up with a couple more more comments and then I'll, then I'll, then I'll do that. Um, OK, no, and I want to, contact details and, and et cetera. Yes. So thank you once again for for coming on, Philip. Certainly you've made me think more positively about fictionalism. Uh, I wasn't sure how this afternoon's conversation was going to go, but that's certainly what the result of that has been. So, oh, so, so thank you for that. And, um, and once again, thank you for being so enthusiastic about, about coming on for, for what is not a, a, a an enormous podcast. So, so thank you uh, for that, Philip. Uh, really appreciate that. Thanks. And we're going really to try fun. to, yeah, uh, it has been, uh, I've really enjoyed it. And it's wonderful to have a second English accent on this backing me up. It's brilliant. <laughs> Even if, as we found out right at the beginning, you are a Mac user. But that is absolutely a forgiveness that I'll, I'll send your way. I'm a what? <laughs> um, a Mac user. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> right, right. So, um, and as, as has been hinted at, we'll try to get you back on for uh, an episode on Ask an Atheist Anything, talk about panpsychism, because we know we have listeners who will absolutely want to to talk about that, who will be really enthusiastic about listening to that. So this is a, a, a teaser. If any of our listeners have a question specifically for you that they would like us to put you on, on that subject, <laughs> get it in quickly, because we're going to make preparations. Um, so... In order to contact us, it's reasonpress.net or reasonpress at gmail.com to ask us a question. Or in the links at the bottom of this episode, click on the link that Anchor will give you uh, in the episode. And you can record us a voice message directly using the Anchor app on 
any uh, device or uh, PC operating system that you care to use. In order to contact Philip, it's at philipgoffphilosophy.com or you can contact him at uh, on Twitter at, at philip underscore goff or there's uh, the blog, which I believe is a WordPress blog, which is consciousandconsciousness.com. I follow that. Conscience and consciousness. No, yeah, that's right. I follow the blog. It, it, you will learn something in every post. Uh, I'll oh, okay. try and remember to include a link to the religion, but not as we know it, uh, blog poster in the show notes. Thank you, Philip. I've really had a great past two hours. Thank you once again. This has been a wonderful episode. No um, worries. Thank you very much.